FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have everybody with us for today's Political Rewind. Uh, boy, we have a lot to talk about, so we're going to introduce a panel and um, get to it as quickly as possible. Greg Bluestein, the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here. You have a couple of stories in the paper over the last 24 hours that we're going to want to talk about uh, today, but thanks for being here. Of course. Glad to be here. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to the GPB news page on Facebook, uh, right across from Greg in the, our temporary studio, I remind people we're building a brand new talk studio, but this temporary studio is nice. working out pretty it's well. Nice. Yeah, you can actually see faces because the microphones are lower. That's Lori Geary. She is with us today. Lori, of course, a longtime uh, political reporter for WSB TV and now the host of Georgia Gang mm-hmm. on Fox 5 at 8.30 on Sunday mornings. How long have you been in that job now? It's been a while. Well, I joined the panel probably yeah. almost a year ago. Okay. And really, it's just been about two months taking um, over as host. Took over from... Uh, Dick Williams, who'd been there for about 137 or 138 <laughs> years, I think. Yes. And he is enjoying, I assume, being a little bit more laid back retiring. Yes. Um, I'm glad you could be here. We love having you on. Um, Mike Thurman is uh, with yes. us. He, of course, is the CEO of DeKalb County and has held many uh, spots in elective office as a legislator. He was the state labor commissioner, superintendent of DeKalb County Schools um, at a time when they really needed some strong leadership, and uh, now CEO of DeKalb County. Thanks for coming in, Mike. Delighted to be with you, Bill, as always. And across from you, Ed Lindsay, former uh, Republican legislator from uh, Atlanta, uh, back with us again today. Ed, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Let me start with you. Let's do this. It's graduation time, (laughs) and many people at this table uh, have graduates to brag about. Yours is who, Ed? Uh, Shout out to Zachariah Weston Lindsay, uh, (laughs) class of uh, 2019 from the University of Georgia Law School. I hope you can hear that we're playing your graduation means goodbye (laughs) in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where's where's, uh, he at? You know, he's headed up to uh, to Washington to work on Capitol Hill. Oh, terrific! Yeah, uh, has he got it working with a member of the uh, House or Senate? He's still looking. He's got several interviews okay. lined up. Uh, he's headed up there next week, and uh, and we uh, we're very excited for him. Oh, terrific! Uh, Lori Geary, you've got a graduate too. I'll try not to cry. <laughs> <laughs> my fifth grader, Alexandra Talbert, my daughter, my oldest, she's graduating from fifth grade today. Wow. So it was a big day in the Talbert family. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Bluestein, you have you have a graduate too. Yeah, Brooke Bluestein graduated from pre-K. <laughs> <laughs> she got a class ring, a ring pop, that she, that she quickly ate, and she's going all the way down the hall to kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we should uh, give a shout out to our senior producer, Tom Faust, his daughter, fifth grader. Uh, he, she graduated this morning as well. Catherine uh, is his daughter's name. So it's graduation. I have one. Go not ahead. A, not a son or a daughter, but okay. my niece graduated from Emory Law. Wow. This past Sunday. What's her name? Renika Archibald. Wow. Where's she proud headed? of her. She's yeah. working now at Greenberg Tar. Wow. Oh, not bad. Good firm to get involved with. All right. Um, my daughter graduated from Emerson College in Boston, which is why I've been wearing a Boston Red Sox cap all day uh, a week ago. So, And she's now in New York City working uh, with uh, the great director Kenny Leon on the oh, first really? public theater Shakespeare in the Park production this summer, um, which is much ado about nothing. So we all have something in common uh, today. All right. Let's get right to it. Uh, Greg Bluestein. Let's talk, for, for a number of shows now, it, I, I know people are, they say, all right, we've heard enough about 481. We know the abortion law, you know, we know about it. We're starting to get tired of hearing about it. But the reality is it keeps generating news here in Georgia and across the country. Um, and the story that you reported exclusively uh, is about 
Governor Kemp, who you should have been with him in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles today. That was the plan to do the annual Georgia Salutes the Industry event. He couldn't go. I was going to leave right after my daughter's uh, graduation, head off to, to L.A. Um, last week, he postponed that trip probably until November of later this year because of a swirl of rumors about protests and no-shows. And, and so they decided it would be better off not to have that event now uh, and wait till maybe the edge is taken off a little bit. Who knows if that will happen? But in the meantime, he, he visited uh, the Georgia Film Academy today to try to show his support for the film industry and, and try to quell the the growing uh, unrest in Hollywood over these the, his anti-abortion heartbeat bill that he that he signed into law and that Republicans passed this year, um, and amid all this, there's also talk. There's also word of of even more projects that are leaving Georgia. There's already a list of Hollywood celebrities who have said they will not work in Georgia if this law takes effect, and now we have two more developments. Um, just just yesterday, of two more productions that are that are pulling out of Georgia. All right, so let me throw this out to the panel. I, I we have said on this show, and I've gotten pushback from a, a number of panelists, and so I want to ask all of you that uh, to dismiss the protests, as Governor Kemp did at the convention last weekend in Savannah, as the protests of C-list celebrities, is um, quite simply a mistake at this point because it's it, it Lori. This is a growing concern. There are, this thing has a life of its own, and I think that the governor and the supporters of this law are not quite sure how to handle it. Well, I think, I agree with you, Bill, I think the C-list celebrities comment really fired up that crowd in Hollywood. And then you had, I think you had Ron Howard come out um, shortly after that, big time director, big name in Hollywood. And I think, you know, once the bill signing happened, we knew that there were protests, but Hollywood was kind of silent. And then it seemed like it was like a, a growing crescendo almost. And I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. And if you are getting tired of hearing about this because we struggle with it on the Georgia gang, it's not going away. And maybe it's not going away until, you know, this makes its way possibly all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Ed? Well, it, it will have some business impact. I, I, I still have my doubts as to how serious that impact is going to be. Uh, the bottom line for the film industry is the bottom line. And I believe most uh, folks that are working here in Georgia will continue to work doing um, film, uh, being part of the film industry, which is now a $9 billion a year industry in our state. Uh, certainly there there are some uh, jittery feelings out there uh, about this, but I think in the long run, I'm still doubtful that it's going to have a long-term impact. So, Michael, your uh, take on this is particularly interesting in this room because DeKalb County, of course, has been courting film and television productions. You'd like to get your share of business and have done a good amount of business. As CEO of the county, how concerned are you about what seems to be a growing uh, uh, feeling among industry folks that George is not a good place to work right now? We are very concerned about the implications of this. Uh, We are becoming the center of film production in the state of Georgia. as a big project uh, being proposed by Blackhall in southeast DeKalb. But this is going to be and will continue to be a major concern for us from just an economic development perspective. On a political, in terms of the political impact, uh, I think the Republicans are concerned. Because this is beginning to emanate beyond the film industry. My DA, the highly respected Ms. Sherry Boston, has gone on record with other DAs in Metro Atlanta saying that we will not prosecute a woman under this statute. Yeah, and she's one of uh, four metro area DAs, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it. I don't want to get in front of it. No, that's fine. That's important that you mention it now. We'll talk uh, in more depth about that. So here's the thing. We have some 92,000 people, I think, employed in the film and television production business here. Time Magazine posted a piece on their website which quoted several of them as one of them was a woman who was going to be part of a TV production, Mm -hmm. Greg, that was shooting down in Savannah. She'd bought a house down there because she expected this series was going to have a five-year lifespan. The contract was five years as starting point. And the production has pulled up roots. And there are others quoted in this who are Georgians who say they're troubled by this. They think the work is starting to dry up. 
Yeah, and it's good to remember, too, that as much as that a lot of that film production is based in Metro Atlanta, it also has such an impact in places like Savannah and rural areas, small towns all over Georgia where, where film production crews want certain settings, and Georgia kind of offers everything from the mountains to the beach to rural settings to urban settings, and that's why Georgia was so popular. Uh, there's a movement called the Stay and Fight movement that's just trying to push back on this, mostly yeah. from Democrats who are saying, hey, all these boycotts isn't the right way to do it because the people... People who work in these industries tend to be left-leaning uh, uh, supporters, um, uh, voters. And so when all these Hollywood uh, producers and, and directors and actors talk about leaving Georgia, they're hurting the 90,000 or so employees who tend to support their views. Well, that gets back to my point. Uh, like I said, I, I do expect... Um there's a lot of publicity around it right now, but once things settle down, once folks start seeing the the people that are impacted, once folks start looking at the roots that have been uh, already laid down in Georgia in terms of of the production facilities, uh, that and start listening to the folks who are asking folks, you know, if you oppose the bill, don't leave, stay. Uh, be part of the Georgia community. That, I think, is going to have a lot more impact in the long run. Mike? I, I too, at Black Hawk, one of the things that that had an impact on me is how transient this business is. You can almost shoot a movie anywhere. The real threat is a state that might pass similar credit abatement legislation, and the investment is not that great to build a movie studio. Well, we know that North Carolina had a thriving movie business. Yes. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis built a, a studio up there, much the same way that we now have studios here. And when the North Carolina legislature started backing out of the tax credits up there, that industry dried up virtually overnight. Yeah. And came here. And I think what was interesting is a couple people, when I was out and about over the weekend, it was interesting the comments I had from folks who don't follow politics as closely as we do, they were asking me, do you think Governor Kemp is going to give? And I was like, give on what? Give on what? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because we're so used to this Governor Nathan Deal administration, (laughs) who I think in a lot of ways bucked his party, you know, and put business first in terms of religious freedom because he didn't want this state to turn into an Indiana or North Carolina. Um, so I think that we're used to that type of governing. And now we have Governor Kemp, who's on a whole other side. So, but, it, but get back to your point. Uh, it, it was in North Carolina, not uh, some... No, it wasn't social issues. Uh, on a social You're issue. You're right. It was it was bottom Economics. line issue mm-hmm. of taking away the, right. the tax exemption. So, so, Ed, let me start with you on this, and then I'd love to get everybody else in, in the mix here. Um so Brian Kemp at the state convention last weekend may have, I mean, he was giving, he was throwing out red meat to his base. That makes perfect sense. Um, and he may have rather inartfully <laughs> talked about C-list celebrities. We're not going to let them push us around. But what about the larger point? Another way of saying this is we are not going to let business interests interfere with a firm belief, moral belief that we have that a fetus is a life and should not be aborted. In other, so it's great. We've all spent time talking about the business side of this. But if you're on the other side of this issue, one of the things you're saying is, excuse me, we're talking about saving lives, which is the way they feel. Which is very much the way they feel. And that's why this governor uh, is held so highly by the base is that you know he said he was going to support this legislation. He supported this legislation and he signed this legislation. Uh, we can and, and we have here debated as the, the merits of the legislation, uh, but in terms of him keeping his commitment uh, to uh, his base and to the and doing what he said he would do uh, in the election, he's done exactly what he said he could, he, should, he was going to do. What was interesting about that speech over the weekend in Savannah was that he had he had taken the stance before when it, whenever we'd ask him about um, the Hollywood impact on from the anti-abortion bill, he would say, "Well, look." Hollywood values are Hollywood values, but I fight for Georgia values. Fine, right? That was his answer. But what he did over the weekend was take a much more confrontational tone, much more confrontational than Governor Deal ever had or Governor Purdue ever had, certainly. Those were two of the biggest supporters of the of, of the film tax credit. And, and, and it was, you know, from studio executives who instantly start lighting up my phone, 
they were saying he's asking for it. I mean, he's asking for this to accelerate. And then that's exactly what we saw over over these last few days. Who knows how, how big this will mushroom, but certainly we've already seen the, this impact starting Greg, to Greg, what should we make of this visit that he's done, tried to do very quietly, but that you reported, were able to report on? I mean, I think one of the takeaways is that he's keeping it private, right? Um, he So it's not meant as a, a larger show to say, hey, to, you know, he doesn't want necessarily cameras and and for and reporters following him as he does this um because they're trying to still keep a lot of this under wraps um i just got a text from someone in the industry uh here in georgia again that we've all been talking to similar people and some of them don't mind being quoted by name others don't want to be all i'll say is this is somebody who is deeply involved in film work here, and, it, and unless I'm told it's okay to use the name, I won't. Kemp canceled a roundtable with me and my colleagues and did a closed-door film academy tour instead to avoid criticism. Are you aware of that? Yes, um, and it might be the same source. Um, but, but, yeah, at first, at first, there was apparently plans for some sort of roundtable um, to, to in, in front of reporters and cameras, where where film studio executives would be able to confront him and ask him and question him personally. And instead, Georgia Film Academy, there's there is a studio on set there, but it's not the same as talking with some of these studio executives who are losing. In one case, we reported Rodney Ho, my colleague, reported that one one uh, studio executive here lost a thirty million dollar production and was told flat out it was because of this so um mike some of the hollywood folks are parsing this very carefully um we're hearing from uh, people like i think Ron howard that if the courts uphold the georgia law they're getting out of georgia uh so that's hedging your bet in a way and it speaks to what ed is uh, uh, proposing will happen right uh, absolutely. And, you know, we, we I guess you have to disaggregate the moral conviction, which we have to acknowledge that there is a conviction of belief that children exist with heartbeat. Uh, the politics of it is very different. Uh, writ large, uh, with Governor Kemp is, I think, modeling uh, President Trump. Uh, we are seeing, we debated or we discussed on numerous occasions whether the Republicans would try to expand from their base or would they double down uh, to their base? And that question has been answered. Uh, So far, it's been successful. Uh, We are discussing Governor Kemp. Let's just not forget that fact. Not former candidate Kemp. And so until or unless it proves to be not successful, I don't see him migrating from that position. Lori, I think what uh, Mike just said is really interesting. Trump, of course, has from the very beginning uh, done everything for his base. And now Brian Kemp, who only won by some 50,000 votes, has apparently decided at least this early, at this early point in his tenure that he, too, wants to play to his base and that it's his base that will uh, keep him in office for a second term. I think we'll know next year in 2020. Yeah, in the legislative yeah. races, of um, course. I think we'll know for sure the impact. I mean, I will say this is the one issue, the abortion debate, it really brings out both sides, right? It brings out the Republicans just as much as the Democrats. Nobody sits home when it comes to this issue, I feel like. So, um, I, but I think in 2020, we'll know. And in 2022, will it be former Governor Kemp or will he have enough in the rural Georgia to really sustain him? And, and I believe, excuse me, Greg, the 2018 may have fundamentally changed Georgia politics uh, from a moderate, even Democrat or Republican, whether it's Governor Deal or Governor Barnes, they were basically moderates, if you really think about it. And now 2018 created, now Stacey Abrams also played to the base. So Governor Kemp is playing to the base. So you, And so that is now the path that I think we'll pursue in Georgia politics for the foreseeable future. I think it's unfortunate because I am a lifelong moderate. Yeah. Not sure I have a place anymore. I, I think that's I true. think that's true what mm-hmm. Mike just said about himself, Greg. He's increasingly kind of an outlier. He's a guy who's been able to form consensus across party lines. 
wh- where does he stand now, you know? Yeah, through like four different positions. Yeah. They come. <laughs> so, and, and that's really, that, that strategy was laid bare um, at the Republican convention this weekend where, where it was, I was at, the, I've been to every convention since whatever, 2012. And in 17, at the last convention, um, there was very little talk about Donald Trump. It was mostly state and local issues. And this, this convention was almost all about Donald Trump. Every speaker invoked him. His face was everywhere. His memoboo was everywhere. He was tied at the hip to every candidate. And, and I think the strategy for both parties is if you can turn out your base, the moderates who would lean towards you are going to ter- go your way anyway. It's all about base turnout and doing things like, like you're seeing Governor Kemp do. But at the, in the long run... As, as as Michael has discovered in his executive positions that he's held, you have to govern from the middle. Uh, you have to take into account uh, the views on both sides of the spectrum and just try to come up with good, solid policy. And and that's going to be the, the question uh, as we go into 2020 and beyond is who can actually govern. I mean, we have very real issues in this state. We have issues on education, transportation, economic development uh, on down the line. And in the long run, uh, while we do have these gyrations on the extreme, uh, you're going to have to have folks who can govern from the middle. And I also think um, when he was talking about the middle, you know, when we look at polling in any race, we're n- we're now looking at not just Republican, Democrat, but we're looking at those independents. Because, you know, since Governor Purdue first got elected, we know that those independents have really gone Republican. But now um, we're seeing those independents kind of in the middle and Perhaps maybe they'll head more left, but we'll know, you know, next year. Um, let's uh, keep talking about this, but add a couple layers to it. Um, Michael Thurmond, you uh, talked about your DA in DeKalb County, Sherry Boston. She became one. You're the Fulton, Paul Howard, uh, DeKalb, Sherry Boston, uh, uh, in Cobb, the acting mm-hmm. district attorney, and the, the fourth. And I don't remember off the top of my head who it was. Oh, uh, Danny Porter, Danny of course. Porter. And, 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 and Cook and who, Macon. by the way, I don't exactly think of as a liberal district attorney. <laughs> uh, but they've all said, Michael, they will not prosecute women. There are questions as to whether this law, in fact, opens the door for women who have abortions beyond six weeks uh, to be prosecuted. Uh, and they've all said it isn't going to. We will not do it. Yes, and so you have a basically a national issue that's been argued, debated at the state level, and now been localized. And so now you can think forward to the next election cycle, and will they have opponents that run simply on that issue? Yeah. I can well, see it happening in counties and jurisdictions all over the state of Georgia. Yeah. This legislation has many legs. Yeah. Let, let, let's sort of break down the, the, the legal issue because, you know, we, we've discussed the economic issue. There's certainly the political issue, particularly in the suburban areas uh, where there's a lot of battlegrounds uh, races going on. And then there's the legal issue. And, and for your listeners and viewers, I, I think it's important to understand something. Nothing by this bill changed the existing law in terms of who can be prosecuted for abortion for committing abortion. That, that's a criminal statute that's been around for over 50 years. It's 1612-140 in the Georgia Code. And the only one who can be prosecuted for an illegal abortion underneath that code section is the individual who's performing the abortion, whether it be a doctor or a midwife or whoever. That law wasn't changed by this. That law applied when the cutoff date for, for an abortion was 26 weeks. It applied when it's at 20 weeks, and now it applies at six to eight weeks. Uh, you know, yes, there are some folks who are worried about unintended consequences, but if there are unintended consequences, they already existed in the existing law. I, I do want to um, g- give a plug real quickly uh, because it's the appropriate time to do it. If you want to hear more a more detailed and in-depth conversation about the various permutations of what some people believe this law could do, uh, Robert Jimison uh, did a terrific podcast that's posted on the Political Rewind uh-huh. uh, website right now uh, with Amy Steigerwald uh, from Georgia State University, a frequent panelist on the show, um, and Donna Lowry. And Amy Steigerwald really broke this down yeah. 
um, and and it's it's well worth listening to. But if I can add one other thing, you know, folks on both sides of this issue, folks who both believe in this and who don't believe in this, uh, when it comes to actually drilling down, are generally in agreement on that. Uh, Stacy Fox, who's with Planned Parenthood. Uh, also came out very strongly in the Washington Post and said that nothing in this this changes the existing law when it comes to who could be prosecuted. But there is certainly confusion. Yeah. I, I reached out to all 49 district attorneys in Georgia to ask them what their stance is on this law, and I'm still getting some of the responses back. Mm-hmm. And I've heard from about a quarter of them, and several, as you mentioned, not just the Metro Atlanta DAs, but also the Macon DA, David Cook, said flat out, would not use this, would not, would not try to enforce this statute um, uh, at all. And then there's many, many other DAs, including many in, the, in, in rural areas and more conservative areas, who said, hey, it's, I'm not going to make a, pre, a prejudgment. This is, it's a case-by-case yeah. case scenario, and I'll see. Several of them said there's no abortion providers, you know, Planned Parenthood facilities in their, in their, in their territories, but certainly there's OBGYNs and, and pharmacists. Um, so there's a lot of muddy area, and several of these DAs are saying, yes, this law already needs to be clarified. Well, I think also, um, now that we're kind of past maybe the political ramifications of this, or maybe we're still discussing them, but then there becomes these uncomfortable conversations about implementation if this becomes law. and. Yeah. Women are very confused, and maybe, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but it's like, how do you enforce this law, and what about the HIPAA Act, and, um, you know, what are you going to do in doctor's offices? I mean, because I was trying to look up and researching for the show, like, when the last time an abortion provider was prosecuted in Georgia under the current law, and I, I couldn't really find any, so maybe something like an article that needs to be written, but, you know, what is the current, you know, how is the current law enacted now? Um, meanwhile, you made a good point, too. Um, you uh, uh, alluded to it. Uh, we're hearing from clinics that women are already confused, are already not sure it's legal for them to go and have an abortion that they feel they, they need to have for whatever reason, uh, because they don't quite understand that the law hasn't gone into effect. And so it's sowing some confusion already, Mike and, and out of confusion, human, the human mind often will meander toward worst-case scenarios. And so, fear. Yeah. And fear. It's fear. It's fear. And, and it's creating fear across the state, and particularly in the suburbs with educated, primarily white women. I just do not see this being a win with that demographic. So I've got to yeah. get to a break, and I'll, I'll do that in just a second. But, you know, I, I do want to say one quick thing. You know, we pride ourselves on this show on bringing people of disparate opinions together to have reasonable conversations about major issues. I've tried to figure out a way how you can possibly have someone who supports this law talk with, say, a Stacey Fox at Planned Parenthood and have a reasonable conversation and a meeting of the minds. The simple reality is this is a black and white issue, and there is no meeting of the minds on this, it seems to me. Am I missing something? I think a lot of issues are like that now, though. I mean, you talk about immigration and things like that. Yeah, but even those you can I think get. because this one is so personal. I, 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 yeah. I, I disagree. Uh, but, but I do recognize that the loudest voices are those voices out on the extreme. But I do believe that when you do get into a detailed discussion with someone who isn't, who isn't firmly, you know, ensconced. You know, I don't buy it. You're either you allowed to get an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, or you're not. Well, it's, that's, that's all there is no, no, to no, no. it. I'm talking about the broader. I'm talking about the broader abortion issue. Okay, I understand. Uh, n- not necessarily. You're absolutely right on that issue, on that bill. You're either with it or you're against yeah. it. But when it comes to the broader issue uh, of all the various things involved in 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 abortion, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the extremes yeah. on, on okay. both ends of the spectrum. I got to get to a break. We have a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind today, and we'll do that in just a moment. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org cars. And thanks. I'm gonna get in the car. With unemployment near a 50-year low, workers who once had trouble finding jobs are now in demand, including those with disabilities. 99% of all the people I run into would much rather work than collect a disability check. 
And that's just the truth. Moving from the disability rules to the payroll. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Greg Bluestein, you father of a preschool graduate. (laughs) And a second grader. Uh, And a second grader. We had an important ruling from uh, Judge Totenberg, Amy Totenberg, last night. It's the continuation of a case that began well before, well, in the months before the 2018 election. Uh, She was presented with a case in which the plaintiffs demanded that Georgia vote on paper ballots in in November of 2018, initially, uh, because of their concerns about security lapses in the machines we were using. Uh, She, at that point, said, look, I'm sympathetic, but it's too, there's, the election's coming up too quickly. We can't make changes now. But in the last 48 hours, she has said, yes, this case in which these plaintiffs say they want paper ballots for the 2019 municipal elections, and more importantly, into 2020, when we allegedly will have new machines, she says the paper ballot argument can move forward. Yeah, this was a big victory for the for the for the plaintiffs, uh, who you know state the state often can win these sort of dismissal motions, but um, with Judge Totenberg, she wrote that the plaintiffs in the lawsuit paint an unsettling picture. Um, of the vulnerability of, of Georgia's voting system. And, uh, you know, she had kind of hinted that she was leaning that way in the earlier arguments that that our colleague, uh, our AJC colleague, Mark Nisi, was at. So she kind of tipped her hand a little bit here, but still it was seen as a as a major victory for the voting. So let me again, Michael Thurman, because you are the CEO of one of the largest counties in the state. Uh, how do you, what do you do with all of this information? Um, if you were not certain... <laughs> If Totenberg takes this case and ultimately rules that we should be voting on paper by paper, then the state's effort to buy these new machines becomes in question. And you as a county leader have got to figure out how the heck you maneuver through all this. Uh, absolutely. And I've had to immerse myself much more than I ever <laughs> dreamed I would have. Uh, in the local election system, uh, actually elections in DeKalb County handled separately. Are handled separately right. by a board of elections. Right. Uh, you know, not including the governing authority. However, uh, what Judge Totenberg, there are issues of merit here that needs to be discussed, and I think that was important. Uh, the plaintiffs were able to defeat summary judgment, i.e., to move the case forward, to hear the concerns, and it's hard not to. Uh, acknowledge that we have had issues with voting and with tabulating those votes. And every Georgia citizen who's interested in democracy and fairness should want these issues to be aired. And I'm hoping out of that we will have a system uh, that is more accountable, more transparent, that all citizens will have more confidence in. Now, whether or not that is a paper ballot remains to be seen, but clearly there are steps that can and should be taken. And the state, quite frankly, is going to have uh, unfunded mandates are not enough, which is what you're referring to. You can come up with the great ideas and the solutions and then direct counties to finance them. In DeKalb, we probably could afford it. That's not true for small counties in rural Georgia, in ex-urban Georgia, who might be burdened by a huge, huge cost increase to it many elections. Ed, you've uh, argued election-related cases in mm-hmm. federal court and the state Supreme Court when it came to the lieutenant governor's uh, yes. race and a concern about undercounted uh, ballots on the machines. How, w- what's your take on this? If, if Totenberg keeps his case moving forward, how, how does it interfere with the state's plans to move on, go ahead and buy these machines, get a contract and buy yeah. these machines? What well, happened? Well, Michael, Michael's right in that uh, the only thing that that happened in this order was to overcome the first hurdle, which right. is a fairly easy hurdle for the plaintiffs to overcome, which is simply just to say, look, there's some evidence out there we think you ought to take have a full hearing rather than dismiss it as a matter of law. And the and I certainly would expect Judge Totenberg to move expeditiously for all the reasons that we've already considered. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, while there's a lot of rhetoric here, both sides are actually moving a little bit closer uh, to agreement on when it comes to the, necess- the necessity for at least a paper backup. Uh, that's what the new statute requires. Uh, the question is whether or not that backup will be generated uh, as a result of a machine doing it or as a result of the voter, uh, him or herself, uh, doing it directly. 
that's a lot closer than we were when we were arguing that it was either going to be paper ballots entirely or it was going to be an electronic system with no yeah, paper backup. Yeah, but you know, here again, Lori, there's all of this, this is another time when confusion gets thrown into the mix here for voters. Out well, there. And I'm just not convinced that a hand-marked system will be that much, you know, better than, you know, a an electronic machine. And I think that Georgia will probably argue that, you know, a lot of these election issues we've dealt with in the current law that was just passed because they looked at the registrations and um, and the move or the closing of the voting booths, you know, has to be done by a certain amount of time before the election. So they did address some of those issues. But um I just don't see that a hand, you know, a handwritten system is the yeah. best way to go. I think a lot of people need to go back and read uh, 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 Professor Bullock's uh, book on the three elections uh, back in 1946 <laughs> and see how, how safe paper ballots were with a ballot box. Well, it was interesting. This issue originated on the extreme right in terms of questions yeah. about election integrity. Uh-huh. It has meandered to the middle yeah. and now it energy from the left. Yeah, sure. And that's what Ed is really alluding to. Yeah. There's a lot of consensus around we need to do more and be more uh, accountable. Yeah, remember, bids for proposals for the new election system are out. The process is already underway. So so any sort of court ruling could derail um, that, that new legislation that Lori mentioned that, that is already sort of, you know, in that process of trying to vet those machines, find, let, let the contracts, and figure out who will, who will provide them. And some of those long lines, you know, that, that we talked about that are mentioned in the court filings, you know, weren't a result of the machines. They were a result of lack of machines or management or somebody forgetting the power cord, but it wasn't a direct result yeah. of machines. And, and you know, an, an individual having to, go, uh, whatever, you, whatever you do, to, to bubble in uh, the, your your choice as opposed to touching a screen, that's going to slow down the process. That's yeah. going to add to the lines. Uh, so there's a lot of things to be said for the system that's being proposed uh, in terms of an electronic system with a paper backup. Uh, Fulton you know. County may not want that paper yeah, system. Yeah, that's right. All right. Uh, well, let's see when Totenberg gets a, gets everybody together and has a, a hearing on, on this. We hope it's sooner rather than later for all our sakes as voters in this state. Lori Geary, we talked at the beginning of this show about the fact that Governor Kemp was playing to his base, certainly with 481, the way he talks about the film studios. And he really took another step in that direction by... Uh, apparently, based on the reporting I'm reading, in a fairly off-the-cuff, casual way, said, yeah, I'm getting rid of Common Core, (laughs) which is a multi-state standard agreed to by uh, most of the governors, I think, in the United States, and a committee of governors that put together the Common Core, chaired by former Georgia governor, Sonny Perdue, again, not exactly Mr. Liberal, uh, it's not a curriculum. It merely says it's measurements. It says that in any state at third grade, here are the things we expect a student should be able to accomplish, you know, certain reading levels, certain essay writing levels. And now it's been a, it's been something that first the Tea Party uh, and and now conservatives beyond the Tea Party have wanted to get rid of forever. And now Kemp says, I don't know if I can do it on my own, but I want to get rid of it. <sighs> I could probably talk a whole show on this because I am the parent of a fifth grader and a second grader. Um, and I would like some of those governors to sit down and do math homework. <laughs> See, I bet Kemp could. You remember, he's got he's had to get his daughters through school. And that's probably why he's pushing for this because I would push for it too. You know, and, and I think maybe Common Core is a set of standards. But man, you open up these textbooks and it's like Common Core, Common Core textbook, Common Core workbook, and it's just. I think this plays to Democrats and Republicans because I think you know Democrats and Republicans. Have, we're all parents, and um, I just say amen. Like it's time. You're, I think you're glad has, that he so wants glad. to eliminate common core. I am so glad. Interesting. 
This for me was like uh, kind of had to dust off the cobwebs because six or seven years ago, this was all we were writing about. This was yes. one of the biggest, if not the biggest, issue in the in Georgia Republican politics. Every state yep. GOP meeting, every candidate, uh, school boards that were run by conservatives were all calling for the end of Common Core, and then it's kind of been dormant for a while. It's still out there, but it certainly hasn't been the, the issue that was. Right. So, Mike Thurman, once again, we turn to you because you were the superintendent of Camp <laughs> <Yes>. County <laughs> Schools. It all comes back to you, Thurman. Uh, Man uh, of many jobs. Yeah. So tell us about Common Core and your experience. This is another issue that originated with Chambers of Commerce, primarily conservative Republican leadership, wanting to improve performance and outcome in our public schools, primarily across the country. What went wrong was that President Obama endorsed it. And then it became an issue of separation of powers between the federal government and states. It, it never state. was a federal mandate. It was a product of the work of a group of governors, Yes. again, headed by Sonny Perdue. Yes, and then it became a battle of uh, separation of powers and how much influence what the federal government have in the court of a designing uh, curriculum for state and local school districts. And I would just like to see the data of, is it working? You know, are the the college graduates who have gone through the Common Core, are more of them in remedial math now because of this, or are they better off? I mean, I think that those are the million-dollar questions. But I also think there's a reason we are seeing Cumans and Mathnasiums pop up everywhere, and it's great for business because my daughter was in Cumon, (laughs) and that's exactly what the owner said was, you know, they don't learn as many of the basics anymore, so that's why we're here. Yeah. And back when this was the biggest issue, you had both Governor Deal and then School Superintendent John Barge, both as supporters of these standards, while their own party, both of them were Republicans, and their own party bases were revolting against it. So they were in this position where the the governor, Governor Deal, ended up ordering a review of the standards and ended up minor tweaks, but nothing major. Now you've got Governor Kemp, who's the first anti-Common Core governor in Georgia history, uh, because both Sonny Perdue and Nathan Deal were both supporters of it, who's saying that, yeah, this might take a long time, this might take a lot of political capital, but I, but he wants to eliminate the last vestiges of these standards. To Greg's point, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that the base has basically overtaken business interests in Georgia. Mm. That the present leadership is more likely, if choices have to be made, whether it's uh, to what Greg said earlier, whether it's the film industry or Common Core, they are more likely to turn and embrace the base as opposed to business leaders, Georgia Chamber of Commerce, yeah. which has been the, the, the really the Bible yeah. for Georgia politics yeah. for more than three generations. Yeah, uh, that's really years. It, Ask Delta right. about its tax break, exactly. Delta. Yeah. I mean, it's over and over, and Greg has written about it on multiple yes. occasions. It's amazing uh, when you really think about the evolution. I got to get to a break, Ed. You can have the last word on this. I think that uh, that what Laurie was saying uh, is is dead on. Uh, let's look at the stats and see if it's working or not. Yeah. Okay. That's the bottom line. Is it is it improving the quality of education or not? All right. Let's do this. Let's get our final break. This show out of the way. We still have time when we come back to take on a couple of other issues that I hope we all think are interesting. Uh, we'll do that in a moment. On the next fresh air, conflicts within the NRA and the New York State Attorney General's investigation into the NRA's tax-exempt status. We talk with New York Times reporter Danny Hakem. He's been investigating conflicts within the NRA's leadership, its lawsuit against its advertising and PR company, and what leaked documents reveal about the organization. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. I'm Sarah Amon. I own Out of the Blue in Blue Ridge, Georgia. We specialize in wines from around the world and high-end cheeses. And we also have craft beer. I think a lot of people that listen to GPB, it's just part of their day-to-day routine. I have people coming up from Atlanta just to see what Out of the Blue is all about because they hear our ads all the time and they say so. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Mike Thurman, I don't want to let this show end without mentioning something that I I wish I had when I introduced you, your new book. Thank you, Bill. Uh, 40th anniversary edition, third edition 
of a story untold black men and women in Athens history going on sale June 8th uh, <laughs> in Athens. Shameless plug, but published by the Athens Historical Society. Your, uh, people, Some people do not know, although we've mentioned it on this show, that uh, you're a historian at heart. And you have another book that is in the works that will be published in the not-too-distant future, right? Very excited. A, a biography of James Edward Oglethorpe. Yeah, that's really going to be... father... State of Georgia, and the first abolitionist. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, really going to be interesting. Um, we'll do a show with you about your work as a historian at some point in the not-too-distant future. Okay, um, Keisha Bottoms, uh, the mayor of Atlanta, uh, was on uh, uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting's radio, on the radio station yesterday, on our on our website, podcast, lots of different platforms. She's going to be doing a monthly Ask the Mayor segment, it turns out, with Ricky Bevington, our host of All Things Considered. And among many questions that Ricky and listeners got to ask her, uh, Ricky wanted to know why Mayor Bottoms has decided she wants to see the missing and murdered case reopened, reinvestigated. And I thought her answer was interesting. Let's listen. The best answer that I have is that it it is uh, something that really is beyond my understanding. I don't know why it's so heavy on my heart or why it has been but when I heard Mrs. Catherine Leach speak about her son Curtis and praying that you could get some answers and what I know is that sometimes when we pray about things we don't know who will be the one to answer our prayers or in what form but it is resonated with me in a way that has many times been very surprising to me. It is something that I lived through as a child in Atlanta and watching Mrs. Leach and and really experiencing these stories again as an adult um, is something that I just haven't been able to to put to rest. Curtis, Curtis Leach was one of the um, people killed in the missing and murdered case, and uh, her mother, his mother, made a, obviously a huge impact on on Mayor Bottoms when she came to see Mayor Bottoms. Uh, but here's my question: uh, it, it very emotional answer, Greg, and and in some ways I sort of uh, give her credit for being willing to be so um, honest and candid about the fact that she's not quite sure why, but this moves her deeply emotionally. Still. Is this opening a can of worms? It could be, but look, she grew up in Atlanta at a time when these horrific crimes were taking place, and now she's in a, in a position to do something about it. She's she's one of the first city leaders of that generation who who were personally affected by this and the news coverage of it and the and the and the sort of envelope of fear all around the city. And now she she can do something she, as an executive of the city. Yeah. Keep in mind that what were there. What was William Williams actually convicted two of? Two, two, two out of a, out of the dozen. It was a child murder. So mm-hmm. None yeah. of those families got justice. And so right. you know they didn't get justice. Right. And certainly you know given how far we've come with DNA evidence and and everything else in, in terms of forensic examination, uh, you know given the the folks who are still living with a mystery as to what happened to their child, I I think it's perfectly appropriate. Uh, kudos to her. Um. I didn't get here until after it was over. I came in the fall of 83, but in our newsroom, I was at WSB-TV, and people were still buzzing, Lori Geary, about having um, been part of that. Uh, reporters like a Richard Belcher, who was right. back in those days at, at Channel 5, uh, a Mark Picard, and others, still buzzing about what it was like, because Wayne Williams was a freelance camera mm-hmm. man who would work with uh, reporter, so it made it even more chilling for the journalists who had worked with him. And I think, you know, I mean, I wasn't here. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Right. I was young, really young at the time as well. But I think, you know, there's just such a human fascination with these cases. You know, you see like the Ted Bundy documentaries. And then, you know, there was a recent documentary done, or podcast was, I can't remember, on the Wade Williams case. And so I think the fact that these families never got justice and the fact that the mayor was so personally affected by it. And he talked to a lot of African Americans growing up in that time. And their parents, oh, my mom would never let me out. You know, I was never 
never allowed out after dark or I was never yeah. allowed out even during the day because there was such a fear. And I think it brings back so many memories. Mike? The, the case lacked closure. Yeah. It's something I hadn't thought about for years, to be quite honest with you. And if you really think about the controversy and the discussion around the murders as to who the perpetrator was or might be, and if it it turned out to be this black guy, Wayne Williams, and think of we are a city of monuments and celebrations. They are few, if any, monuments to those young men who lost their lives. Yeah. And uh, it was as if a city or a state sought to move on without full resolution. So you were a young you were a young African American kid growing up in Athens, of course, at the time. Do you remember that this had an impact on you from as far away as Athens? Oh, absolutely. Did it? Because you didn't know who the murderer was. Mm -hmm. And initially, we that was taught that it was the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. You have to really think about it. This is Atlanta, it's Georgia, always a racial context to who was committing these murders. And But what I had forgotten, Bill, to be quite honest with you, and I think the mayor is right on point, there was no closure. It just stopped. Yeah. It just stopped. Well, thank you all for talking about it. And, and we're really thrilled that uh, the mayor's decided she wants to, <coughs> excuse me, do this monthly program with Ricky Bevington. We'll tell you, <coughs> excuse me, I'm choking a little. We'll tell you more about it as, uh, as when the next show comes along. Uh, finally, um, I almost hate to bring this up. It looks like as the Congress gets set to go off for the Memorial Day holiday, <laughs> they're going to make a deal. Puerto Rico, Georgia, other states that need emergency funds. Possibly. Maybe. maybe. Bluestein's already raising his eyebrows. Yeah. Is this going to happen go. or not, for goodness sake? We're already hearing that President Trump isn't happy with the settlement that the Congress, the and Republicans you, and Democrats have worked and out. And you tuned into to today's standoff where you heard Trump and, and oh, Nancy Pelosi man. have a very quick uh, abbreviated meeting where he left saying basically um, if Democrats still investigate me we can't get any work done then you can you might as well say f forget the hurricane Michael relief release for the short term you know Ed we have a lot of listeners who are in rural Georgia yeah. for this show and I just our hearts go out to them that they're caught in the middle well, of our this. hearts your hearts rightly should go out to anyone who's the victim of a natural disaster whether or not they're in Georgia or in Puerto Rico or in California or in Texas right. or anywhere else. And there's a lot of folks that are suffering. And there's one thing that government should do, and it's across the political spectrum, is take care of the least among us during a disaster. And, and this needs to be done. Neither side looks good, and neither side should look good until this bill is passed. I think that's such a great point. Nobody's got the high ground here, Lori. No, that's what I was going to say. Both sides look bad. And um, there's no give and take. I mean, I, I feel like we're closer than we've ever been because we're close on the Puerto Rico and we have the other numbers worked out. But still, we are how far away from the holiday and still no deal. I, I grew up on a farm. My daddy farmed. I grew up raising plants and caring for animals and one thing about farms and farm families is the margins are so small yeah. yeah we can possibly get by and for our government republicans and democrats to fail these families is 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 unacceptable and i think a low point in american politics all right. Well, we'll see. Um, Greg Bluestein, you're quite right. The, if people have not seen it uh, in any form, uh, whether reading about it or watching cable news, the, the, the problems between president and the Democrats in Congress grew uh, exponentially this morning, and uh, it's beginning to feel like nothing is going to get accomplished up there. So we'll watch how that unfolds. We are completely out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Thank you all for a really fascinating conversation. I appreciate your all being here. For all of you out there listening, oh, by the way, remember, 
Monday night, June 3rd, I'll say it again, we'll be in Cartersville, Georgia, where we're going to be holding a town meeting in which we want to hear what all of you who come out have to say about the big issues that we talk about all the time on this show. Go to the Political Rewind page at politicalrewind.org and uh, click on the link, sign up for your free ticket, and we'll see you in Cartersville Monday night, June 3rd. Until Friday at 2, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care.